God's Word, and I'm going to read a different translation than we normally have on the screen. So I don't know if we're going to have it on screen, but today we won't. Reading from Luke chapter 23, beginning with verse 26 and through verse 49. Luke 23, 26 to 49. This is the word of the Lord. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. And then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by, watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we, indeed, justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, that is noon, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'm just going to play, uh... oh, I have to stay here. I can't talk over there. You can't hear me. It's going to play a word association game with you, just for a second. And I want you to notice, when I say this word, I want you just to notice what are the words in the images that come immediately to your mind. Not after three seconds, but immediately. And the word is king. 
What are some of the words, you can tell me, what are some of the words and pictures that came to your mind immediately when I said the word king? Crown. Crown. Oh, eight people at once and I couldn't hear any of them. Somebody over here. Christ, authority, throne. All right. Those are the words that I would have thought you would say. Today is Palm Sunday, the week before Easter, and it's the day when traditionally Christians, the church for centuries, have remembered the day on which Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and was acclaimed as king. Now, we looked at that text in the Gospel of Luke a few weeks ago, and today, of course, we've just read the text concerning the crucifixion itself. And yet, kingship is the theme of this text that we've just read. Now, the image of kingship is very different from the things that you have just said and the pictures that normally come to mind. The image of kingship here is very different from that of the triumphal entry. There you had crowds shouting joyfully, acclaiming the one who had come in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. There you had Jesus riding into the capital city on, on a road of palm branches, just as King Alexander the Great had ridden into Jerusalem 350 years before. Here you have a naked Jesus you have the crowds now mocking and scoffing. It's a very, very different flavor than in the triumphal entry. And yet kingship is the theme. Verse 35 of this chapter, Luke 23. The rulers scoffed at him saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, That is, if he is the son of David, if he is the messianic king, the chosen one, let him save himself. And then the soldiers also, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was a sign nailed over Jesus' head on the cross that identified the charges laid against him. This is the king of the Jews, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And then one of the criminals on the cross beside Jesus. Are you not, again, the Christ? Aren't you the royal messianic king? If so, then save yourself. Okay, all of these references to the kingship of Jesus, albeit negative, mocking, and scoffing. And yet one person did recognize the genuine kingship of Jesus, and that was the other criminal, the thief on the cross. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It doesn't say, Jesus, forgive my sins. He talks about Jesus' kingdom and says, remember me when your kingdom comes. Jesus was, Jesus is a king. And Good Friday, this, this crucifixion narrative relates for us the death of a king. The death of the king. What kind of king is he? That's an important question for us to ask because we are his followers. We have affirmed his kingship and we are now in his kingdom. And because he is the king, as 
as is the case in any kingdom, the king sets the tone, the king sets the terms for what it means to be in his kingdom. So what do we see in our king in this, the hour of his suffering and his death? There's a couple of things that stand out to me in this passage. And we are like Jesus to the extent that we see these things in our own life. But before mentioning those two things, I want to notice that, that these things that I'm going to talk about this morning do not just mark Jesus here in his death and at the cross. They mark his whole life. Jesus died as he lived. There was an integrity to his character. The Jesus that we see on the cross, the Jesus that we see in this Passion Week, the Jesus that we see in his trial is the same Jesus that we see at the height of his popularity. The same Jesus that we see healing and feeding and caring for people. His character did not change. I had a friend who said once to me that we are like teacups. And when a teacup gets knocked and something spills out the side, then you know what is inside the cup. And hardship and suffering and dying reveals what we are. When we get knocked by something, what spills out of us reveals what we are. And that's true of Jesus too. And so here we see Jesus' character. We see his central philosophy of how he lived. We see who Jesus was and is. When your teacup gets knocked, what spills out? When, when hardship hits your life, what does it bring out of you? Hope? Despair? Courage? Complaint? Trust? Surprise? Dismay? Does it cause you to lean into God or to drift away from God? Because who you are when life gets hard is who you are. It's, hardship doesn't change us. It reveals us. What do we see in Jesus in his time of suffering and hardship? Two things. First thing we see is his full submission to the will of his father. Near the end of the passage, just before he dies, Jesus calls out with a loud voice and says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The very last thing he does is an expression of trust and hope in the will and goodness of his father. And Jesus, again, lived his whole life that way. And this, this episode of his life, his his trial, arrest, and suffering. You remember from our text and our message last week that this period began with a similar expression of trust. Just 12 hours or so before this, Jesus had said to his father, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus' suffering and death are bracketed by expressions of not my will, but yours. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. My fate, my destiny, I just, it's in your care now. And Jesus gave himself, submitted himself to the will of his Father, which he always did. He didn't just die that way, he lived that way. 
Here's some homework for you. Read through the Gospel of John someday. And notice how often Jesus says things like, I don't say anything except what I hear my father saying. I don't do anything except what my father is doing. My father's working, I'm working. I didn't get this from myself. I got it from my father. Repeatedly, Jesus dropping these hints about the fact that he considered his own life to be in the hand of his father and he lived accordingly and he died accordingly. Jesus always ordered his life around God's will for him. That's a pretty easy thing to say, dressed up in a tie and in a comfortable Western world. But I I noticed last week and have thought about it this week, that when Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane said in surrender, not my will, but yours be done, it immediately led to the most profound experience of suffering in his life. And sometimes I think that we in our Western world think that if we could only just come to the place of surrender, then God would say, finally, that's what I was waiting for. Now I can bless your socks off and everything can be good. I just needed you to surrender to me. And I don't think that that's how it works. Sometimes it does because he's gracious and he's good. But sometimes to come to God and say, your will be done, is the kickoff for a period of refining unlike anything we've ever experienced before. In fact, not only sometimes, I think that in a sense that is normal Christianity. Jesus said, if anyone's going to follow me, you've got to take up your cross every day and follow me. When, when the Apostle Paul got saved, his Damascus Road experience when Christ revealed himself to Paul dramatically, the message to Paul through the prophet Ananias, but the message was, now I'm going to show Paul how much he needs to suffer for my name. Sometimes the will of God is hard. It's easy to say, not my will but yours be done, because I think you're going to bless me all the time, so by all means, let your will be done. It's hard to say, you know what, Lord, I don't know what your will is. It could be very difficult. This place that I find myself in right now really hurts. But your will be done into your hands. I commit my family, my health, my age, my work, my depression, my pain. Snow in April. The will of God can be hard. And Jesus modeled that for us and he even told us that that's often how it would be. Erwin McManus, some of you know who he is. He's a pastor, he's a writer. At the Breakforth Conference a few years back, he made a comment somewhat to the effect that, you know, maybe the will of God for your life is that your blood will mark the way for others to follow behind. And sometimes that's how it is. We forget that in the West. Every week in our bulletin, we pray for uh, a part of the world in which the church is being persecuted. We remember that there are Christians who are being killed, imprisoned, tortured for their faith. And we forget that that's what it means to follow Christ for a lot of people. They would understand, Father, 
into your hands I commit my spirit because life is out of control for me right now. I trust in you in this hardship. There are no guarantees of comfort or of safety for those who follow Christ. In fact, the opposite. And in Jesus' death, we see that he understood that and lived it. And that it was painful for him because he also said, you remember, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet even in the sense, the feeling that God had turned his back on him, even though I feel like God is far away, even then, I commit myself to him. I don't trust this feeling of his absence. I commit my life into his hand. Job said something like that. Though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. And what we see in our king on this day at his death, full submission to the will of his father. The other thing that we see in Jesus here is his concern for the people around him. In this passage in the Gospel of Luke, when, he, when they are leading him to the hill of Calvary until the time that he dies, Jesus speaks four times. One of those times we've already talked about. He commits himself to the will of his Father. The other three times he is caring for the people around him. He's not, he's not defending himself. He's not addressing the people who mock him, right? The rulers, hey, if you're the Christ, save yourself. The soldiers, hey, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. One of the criminals, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself. There's nothing recorded that Jesus says to any one of those three. Because in the Garden of Gethsemane, I think he got himself out of the way. He kind of dealt with his own agony over this the death and suffering he's going to experience. So he's not all absorbed in himself, even in this moment of his pain. He's thinking about the other people. Verse 27 and 28, there's the women in the crowd who are weeping and wailing for him, and his response to them is, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. You feel compassion for me? I'll tell you, I hurt for you right now and for your children. Their children would be the ones who suffered so greatly 40 years later when Jerusalem was destroyed. And their suffering was more, in a sense, than Jesus' suffering. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourself and for them. And then as they are crucifying him, Jesus prays and says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I find that an astonishing moment in the life of Jesus. Not, not after the fact when he looks back a week or a year or two years and says, man, they really hurt me then. Father, forgive them. It's while they're doing it. While they're nailing him. While they're mocking him. While, they're, while he's bleeding from the crown of thorns. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. It's an amazing thing. It's what our king does, and that's what it means to live in his kingdom. Who is there in your world that needs to be forgiven by you? Flip side, who is there in your world that you need, even for your own sake, to forgive? 
There is somebody, almost certainly. But Jesus is more concerned with those who are crucifying him than with himself. And I think that that what Jesus said made a real impact on at least one person. At the end of this text, you have the centurion who says, surely this man was innocent. Gospel of Mark says, surely this man was the son of God. Somehow the centurion understood as he watched Jesus die who Jesus was. Now, we usually kind of gloss over the centurion, but who was this centurion? Why was he there? He was the one who was in charge of making sure that Jesus got crucified. He was the one who had to make sure that on that day, Jesus died. He was probably then the one either who put the spear in Jesus' side or commanded that it be done. And of all of the people on Calvary on that day, when Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing, the centurion would have said, he means me. The centurion bore more responsibility than anybody else who was there for what was happening. And Jesus prays for his forgiveness. And then a few hours later, the centurion says, this man is different. This man did not deserve this. This man is innocent. He is righteous. And maybe, maybe even this man is the very son of God because I have not seen something like this before. Even in the moment of his suffering and death, Jesus is aware this guy needs forgiving. Oh, Lord, have mercy on this man. Is that not an incredible thing to see in Jesus? How many of you think you could do that? You could do that. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That very same kind of forgiveness because it flows out of the love and the character of Jesus Christ himself who lives in you and in whom you live in this, this weird, mysterious unity. That forgiveness, you can do that. And sometimes we think, I'm just not ready to forgive. It's not true. We say, I can't forgive. God says, you can forgive, you need to forgive. To not forgive only hurts you. Father, forgive them, they know not what they're doing. I had a conversation this week with somebody and I was struck deeply by this person's willingness to forgive and pray for the good of somebody who had caused such pain in his life. And in that conversation I said, you know what, you look like Jesus when you talk like that. And it's true. And then thirdly, Jesus says then to the thief, the other thief, who asks him, Lord Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, you know what? Let me tell you something that's true today, this day. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Don't think about when I come into my kingdom at some later date. Today, you will be with me in paradise. And that too I find incredible because it turns on its head all the things that we as Christians and as a church think about what's necessary for someone to get saved. I think I've told you this before. In one of my classes in college, one of the professors did a brainstorming session with us and said, what would you say somebody has to believe or know to be true 
in order to be called a Christian? What are, what are sort of the basics? And we you know, began to put some answers of like Jesus died for our sins and Jesus is the son of God. And then from there, it just sort of expanded into, we filled the blackboard, the doctrine of the Trinity, the inerrancy of scripture and all the things that we kind of include in our central statements of faith, which I think incidentally are, are central. But in a way, when somebody comes to faith, we, we burden them and say, you've got to make it to at least this point before, I don't know, we'll baptize you or we think you're like genuinely actually a Christian. You've got to get all this stuff theologically straightened out. And I'm, st- I'm struck by this, that this, this guy who had never been to church, never been baptized, probably couldn't talk about election at all, probably couldn't formulate any kind of doctrine of the Trinity, hanging there on the cross and does simply two things, acknowledges I've sinned and I deserve judgment and Jesus, I need your help. And that is it. That is step one. And there is growth from there, but Jesus is all over that. I know my sin, I deserve judgment. Jesus, I need your help. And Jesus says, oh man, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus responds so quickly to that. So concerned, overwhelmed with compassion for this guy who's being crucified right next to him. Jesus died as Jesus lived. Living out the two great commandments to love God with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength and to love others, to love his neighbor as himself. The, the women and their children and those who were crucifying him and the one who was being crucified beside him. That strikes me in this text And what also strikes me is the absence of any concern for himself. That here Jesus doesn't speak a word of condemnation or judgment or self-justification. He lived as he died. This is our king. This is the one to whom we say and sing about surrender and righteousness and giving ourselves to this is the one that we say we follow this is the one of whom the scriptures say God's agenda is to make us like him to conform us to the likeness of Christ and therefore this is what it means to live in his kingdom I've been doing a lot of thinking lately and need to do some more and want to find a way to have some of you help me think through this. But about discipleship, thinking about spiritual growth. What does it mean for a church to move people along, to deepen them, to mature people in faith? And in leadership material, there's the axiom that what gets measured gets done. So I think a little bit about, okay, if, we're, if we want spiritual growth and growth and discipleship for people, what do we measure? What do we look for? And I think about things like healthy prayer life and people who are on mission and growth in character and all of these things, but I wonder if it just boils down to two things, and that spiritual maturity is measured simply by an increased capacity to love God and to love people. I wonder if that's... I wonder if that's how you know that somebody is a disciple of Jesus Christ, that somebody is living their life in the kingdom of God, that you recognize that they love God and have committed themselves to him 
and that they love people, that they pray for people in need, that they forgive them when they have been wronged, that they, that they offer mercy and invite them into the kingdom themselves. I wonder if it is just those two basic things. That we see in Christ and that we want to see here. There are two ways, of course, to, in, um, to grow in our commitment to God and our love for people. Both, I think, are healthy and good. One is easier than the other and probably more desirable than the other. The one way, and if you need to start there, then do this, is to roll up your sleeves and do it. <laughs> is to, to look at your life and carve out space for God. To say, I, I need to hear from God. I need to talk to God. I need to pay attention to what God is doing in my life. And arrange our life in such a way that there's room for God, that we're able to hear him speak. That we give him time. We talk about quiet time and devotions and those kinds of things. And there's, there's a discipline around that that is healthy and good. And then at the same time, to carve out time for people. To, to hear of a need like, like those who are starving in the world and say, I'm going to help. I'm going to give 30 hours. I'm not going to eat. I'm going to look for money. To, you know, to do that, which is, takes intention. Or to visit or care or find some way to meet the needs of people. Roll up her sleeves and just begin to do it. That's one way. The other way, more desirable, easier, and more natural, is to just do what we try to do as a church, and that is to fix our attention on Jesus himself. And to find that as we do that, his character increases. And we don't work as hard to seek God and to serve others as much as it becomes fruit. Natural. I have said to a number of people that I think we as a church are in some ways healthier than we've been in the whole time that I've been a part of this church, which is over 10 years now. But I, when I say that, what I, what I mean is that I see green on the tree. There's signs of life. And now, if the tree is healthy, we will see not just leaves, but we will see fruit. And in a year or two or five, we will see whether or not we are, in fact, healthier now than we have been. And if we are, then that fruit will be born, not because we've tried really hard to bear fruit. Can you imagine a tree going, okay, it's spring, I'm going uh, to grow an apple. It doesn't work that way for a tree, and it doesn't work that way for us. We just abide in Christ and bear much fruit. That is the simpler way. Both ways are good. If we need to begin to reorder our lives and, and, and practice some disciplines that will deepen us, then by all means, we need to do that. But isn't it better just to continually seek Jesus Christ himself and bear the fruit? And as we do that, you watch. You watch. You will see love for God increase. You will, your trust quotient and committing your life to him will go up. And you will also see service and care for people and forgiveness of people and praying for people. It will just happen to the extent that we keep Jesus before us. And that's what we want to do. 
There's one last thing that I want to say this morning about our King Jesus in the context of the cross. And that is not that Jesus simply died as king to show us what to be like. But he died as king so that we could be like him. He died also thinking of you. He gave his life for you. He died on the cross because your sins and my sins have separated us from God and earned God's judgment and wrath. And then God sent his son to die on the cross. And when Jesus was on the cross, God's wrath was on him in our place. He died for you. And we can do one of several things with that. We can say, I don't think that that's true. I don't, I don't accept that he's my king. I don't want him dying for my sins. I don't think it happened, whichever. But in that case, then we are on the hook for our own sins still and still remain under judgment. Or we can say, truly, this was the son of God. I, I believe that he died for me and I am so thankful and he is my king, absolutely. Absolutely. And then we don't bear our sins anymore and we get to live this life engaged in increasing measure with God. People responded to Jesus in three ways at his crucifixion. Some were outright hostile, mocking, scoffing. Others, I don't know if you noticed that in the text, but the people stood there watching, just not engaged, neither for nor against, just kind of there. And then there was the centurion, and then there was the thief who responded positively to Christ. And those are the three options available to us. You can hate him, try to ignore him, or you can respond to him. And if you have never responded to Jesus and you want to know that he is your king who died for your sins, that you might be forgiven and live forever in a fullness of life, in communion, unity with God himself, you can do that today. And I will invite you to do that. As the service closes, just to come, come and find me at, as we sing the last song or just here in the front pew afterwards. But if you want to make a step like that and, and affirm Christ as your king, you can do that today. And I promise you that life may become harder, but there will be a fullness. There will be a peace that will characterize your life after that. And many of you nod your head even as I say that. I see you and you know that that's true. Let's pray. Hail, Jesus, you're my king. You're the king of heaven and of earth, the king of history, and the king of me. And I thank you, Jesus. Amazing love that you, my king, would die for me. And I am forgiven because you were forsaken. I am accepted because you were condemned. Jesus, as we see you on the cross, we are struck by your faithfulness to your Father, your commitment to his will. We are struck by how your heart for other people was not diminished, but to your very last breath, you were aware of and caring for the people around you. We're struck by that. And Heavenly Father, we thank you that your great agenda for us is to make us like Jesus, and we want to be. We hunger for that kind of character. We long for you. We want to be good. We want to be loving 
to the people around us, even when it's hard. Help us. But we thank you above all for the great gift of forgiveness and we're struck also by what cost it comes. Not cost to us, but cost to you. Thank you that you do not hold our sins against us. Thank you, Jesus, that you died in our place. Thank you, Father, that in your righteous justice and holiness, that your wrath against sin is no longer leveled at us. But you've poured out love and mercy and grace. As we walk through the week to come, we want to be open to your impressing on us with real force what happened on that weekend so long ago and what it means for us. Help us to see Jesus this week and help others to be able to see Jesus in us this week. This we ask for and this we commit ourselves to by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.